Father, this morning as we come before you, we become amazed at the mercy and grace of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. So Lord, we don't, we don't boast in human effort. We don't boast in achievement, but we celebrate and boast in the accomplishment of God, overcoming the impossible, overcoming sin by taking upon yourself the penalty for sin, being, being made in the likeness of men, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that we may receive the gift of life. For all of those who bow the knee before you, who come to a place of recognizing their sin, who ask for forgiveness, who make you the Lord and Savior of their life, who look to you in faith as the only means of redemption, salvation, and deliverance. And then enjoy fellowship with God because of faith in you. Lord, we celebrate that work. And we pray that for those of us who have enjoyed and experienced that work of salvation, those of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus, those who would identify as true disciples, that this morning as we look into your word, the Sermon on the Mount found in Luke chapter 6, Father, that you would help us to come to a place of honesty in our lives, of seeing how true discipleship that's described by Christ is so often out of step with the life that we actually live. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to take a hard look deep inside and allow your Holy Spirit to have his way. Tenderize us, Father. Allow your Spirit to convict us of sin and to lead us to truth and to accomplish your power. And, and even this morning, as there are some today who are who are here among us and who are listening online, who have never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, I pray in these moments, even now, that you would begin the process of drawing them to faith, that you would accomplish what we have sung, how deep the Father's love for us, that they would experience the tenderness and compassion and deliverance that only your love provides to the deepest parts of where they are, in drawing them to yourself. And Lord, for those of us who do call ourselves disciples of yours, that, that God, we would be those who are on mission this week. Recognize the, the central objective to why we live. We live as those who seek to glorify you. We live for worship of you. And I pray that that would be evident day by day. So go before us in these moments, Lord, as we look into your word. Have your way in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this past week, um, I was uh, driving our van, much like uh, you drive a car from day to day. And, and, and I had already been several different places in that day. Um, it was Thursday. And then all of a sudden, the engine gave out. Right, right in the middle of accelerating, the engine kaput. And I, I know what some of you are saying already. Some of you are saying, 
Andrew, already, would you buy a, a, a new car already? I, I know it's going on in your head. I, I know it. But it, it serves as such a good object lesson, a good illustration so often. I, I, ha- I hate to get rid of the thing. <laughs> you know, of, of all the problems that could be true of my van, and I investigated a lot of different problems, um, thousands of connections, hundreds of parts, they were all working except one. One connection, and that's all it took. One connection, and I'll get just a tad bit technical, this coil or a wire that runs from something called the distributor cap, it distributes power to the engine so the engine can have a spark and the combustion process can work. Somehow, that popped off. I have no idea how. And because there was no power, there was no engine. And because there was no engine, there was no power steering, and there was no braking. And so trying to guide it into the right spot was difficult. But it's emblematic of what we're talking about this morning. It's emblematic of what we all need, every single person in this room. Regardless of of your posture towards God, Every one of us in this room needs power. And there's only one source for power. Power that comes only from God. Have you accessed, have you enjoyed, have you experienced the power that only comes from God through his Holy Spirit? That's what Jesus is talking about this morning in our passage in Luke chapter 6. If you're, if you're, Join in with us. You don't have a Bible. I would encourage you, grab the Bible that's in the pew in front of you. We're on page 862, Luke chapter 6. And Jesus is is introducing this group of followers. We called them would-be disciples, would-be followers. And and, and so I want to just kind of briefly give you an overview of last week's message in the verses 17 to 19. I want to just kind of provide a, a foundation level of what we talked about to, to help provide some, some context for where we're going. But Jesus is talking about discipleship here. Notice in Luke chapter 6, verse 17 to 19, it says, And he came down uh, with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of, of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. That kind of power. That's what we're talking about this morning. And we drew attention to to several different things in just these few verses that, that again, will help lay the groundwork for, for where we're going in the Sermon on the Mount. We, we, we drew attention to the diversity of the crowd. I mean, here, here are these people, and, and it's described in, in two ways here in, in, the, in our text, a great crowd of disciples and a great multitude of followers. He uses this word, this Greek word, that, that, that just draws attention to the significance of the crowd. Uh, the same word, by the way, that was used by Matthew in describing the, the gathering of individuals that came at the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, 
says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd of people, that kind of people. At least 5,000 that were represented on that day, and, and probably as many as 15 to 20,000 once you add women and children. So this is a massive group of people. And what helps us realize is that Jesus was accessible. Jesus was available. Jesus was interested in people. He went to their hometowns. He went into their homes and, and enjoyed the fellowship with, with people. And it didn't matter what their background was. It didn't matter what their social standing was. It didn't matter what their economic status was. It didn't matter the kind of baggage that they brought to the table. Jesus was available. He went to where they were, and he allowed them to come to him. The diversity of the crowd helps you recognize the significance or the compassion of the heart of Jesus in being available for people. And they come. They come from, from all kinds, all, all kinds of, of places and, and all different backgrounds of people. Here they are. We also notice the purpose for their coming in verse 18. It says, Who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Something was significant about Jesus. Something was different. He spoke like no other man. <laughs> he possessed authority. He, he taught in a way that he actually had mastery over the subject. He knew the truth of the word of God. He was able to connect it to the heart in, in, in ways that, that no one else had ever been able to connect truth. It, it pierced them right to the core of where they were. And they knew there was something distinct about the words of Jesus, something authoritative, something that set him apart from the Pharisees. But it was accompanied by healing. A healing ministry. And, and so the authority of words was illustrated by the authority of power that they got to see right where, wherever they were. Every disease was cured. Every demon was cast out. No, regardless of their background, they came and they all enjoyed, every single one of them enjoyed the healing ministry, the power of God through Christ that came to bear on their situation. We got to see the condition for their healing. What was the prerequisite? Who did Jesus heal? What, what was the condition by which they were going to receive this healing ministry? Do you remember? Well, it says at the end of verse 18, those who were troubled with un unclean spirits were cured. Verse 19, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Faith had drawn them. The condition for their healing was coming. And they came because there was at least a hint of believing. A hint of believing that Jesus could do something about their issue. And they didn't dress their issue up. They didn't seek to mask the issue that they had. They didn't seek to conceal that issue. They came believing. They came with honesty, they came with a willingness to put their issues and their brokenness and their problems and their diseases right out so that everyone could see. And that was the condition by which they were going to be able to enjoy the benefits of the healing in every single one who came. And every single one who asked for Jesus to heal them received the benefit of that healing ministry. 
Of course, all of this was meant to be an object lesson to point to the deeper truth, the deeper healing that every single one of them needed. That Jesus wasn't just interested in broken bodies. Jesus wasn't just interested in, in, in mending and fixing up the outside. He was interested in helping to address the deeper and deepest issue of humanity, the, the issue of their sin. And they would experience the healing of that issue in the same way. Not by dressing up the outside, not by disguising their issues, not by concealing their diseases, but allowing it to be addressed by, by Jesus in a, an intimate and specific way through forgiveness, through cleansing, through the healing that Jesus sought to give in forgiving them as he did the paralytic. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus makes the direct correlation between his healing ministry and the spiritual kind of healing that he desires to bring to these people. Notice also the source of their healing we saw in verse 19. For power came out from him and healed them all. The power of the Holy Spirit. This power that Luke has been drawing our attention to since the very beginning of the gospel. Talking about the, the power and the spirit of Elijah that would, would mark the life and ministry of John the Baptist. Speaking about the spirit of the Lord who would be upon Christ for ministry speaking about the authority and power by which Jesus was able to, to teach and to command the unclean spirits to come out of those who were demon-possessed. And here is that power again. That power of the Spirit that rested on the life and ministry of Christ, it was evident. And it's that kind of power that Jesus wants, wants to encourage true disciples to tap into. He wants to encourage true disciples to take part in. And so he calls them in his teaching ministry to power, power of a changed life, power that, that represents that they have been changed from the inside out. And that's where we turn next, from verses 20 to 26. Jesus begins to describe this power of a changed life. And there are three ways in which their life will demonstrate this transformation. First, we see true disciples need a change of perspective. They need a change of perspective. Notice in verse 20 it says, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. By the way, just for pause for a moment there, this isn't just the, the 12 apostles. This is this gathering, this great multitude of disciples and, and those would-be disciples, those who are perhaps on the fringe, those who are followers of him and are just kind of come and have a, have a look-see, kind of see what this guy is all about. They're, you might call them seekers at this point. Jesus is encouraging them as he encourages everyone, follow me. That's why I've entitled this series, Follow Me, because Jesus is inviting followers, disciples, true disciples to come and participate. And so this message is geared to true disciples. This will be the evidence that you belong to Christ. Here it goes. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. 
Fundamentally, in order to enjoy the blessed life, you need a perspective change. Because none of us in this room want to be poor or hungry or cry tears of weeping day after day. So what is actually going on here? What is Jesus calling them to? Jesus is beginning with a set of statements that describe a condition of favor, a condition of blessing. The word to bless or to be blessed is the Greek word that talks about being happy or fortunate or to enjoy favor. So what in the world is is Jesus talking about? And maybe by way of illustration, let me just put uh, this graphic up here on the screen for you so you can see. How many of you can read that? Or how many of you have seen something kind of like this? You, you see these, what seem like letters that are written here, and it's only if you have a perspective change, which is the next slide, can you actually begin to read the words. As you get a long view of the letters, you turn the paper on the edge, and you can begin to see and narrow the focus so what was long before becomes short. You shorten the perspective. You get to see the long view of that, and you can actually read the words. And that's what Jesus is calling his would-be disciples to recognize. Don't have such a short view of life. Have a long view. Look for eternity. Look at what matters, what lasts. Look at what is eternal, not not just what is temporal. Recognize the significance of a perspective change. Blessed are the poor, the hungry now, those who weep now, those who are excluded and spurned on account of the Son of Man. But woe, woe to those who are rich. Woe to you who are full. Woe to you who laugh. Woe to you when people speak well of you. Meaning, stop living for the moment. Stop living for the here and now. Stop living for what you get in the moment. For the comfort now, for the happiness now, for the joy now, for the fulfillment now. Look for the future. Now, by the way, it doesn't mean that rich people are excluded and that all poor people are getting in. This is about a perspective change. Jesus is actually confronting the religious thinking and philosophies they had that were built out of Deuteronomy chapter 28. The the, the blessed life versus the cursed life in in Deuteronomy 28. Where those who do certain things will be blessed and they'll be blessed in having wealth and babies and security and protection and friendships and success and preservation from enemies, all the things that they thought God would do for the person that lived according to the law. That was a blessed life, and Jesus wants to demolish that thinking. It is too short-sighted. You're, you're, you're not understanding the, the fuller picture. You're, you're not recognizing that, that God is after a heart perspective change that looks to eternity and finds satisfaction in God. Verse 20, 620, yours is the kingdom of God. You will be satisfied, future tense. You shall laugh, future tense. Put your hope in that. Put your hope in that. Jesus is here to proclaim good news. The good news of the Lord's favor, as we saw in chapter 4, verse uh, 18 and 19. 
The, the good news is that regardless of your circumstances, you can enjoy the blessed life. As you set your heart and mind on things above where Christ is and not on the things of this life. Here's the problem. The problem is that most of us haven't moved beyond this step. Most of us are so preoccupied with the here and now. Most of us are so distracted by the activities of this world and by the things of this life, we give almost no attention to eternity. When was the last time you woke up on Monday and said, God, what do you have for me today? In light of eternity, how can I be on mission for you today? Accomplish the purposes that you've called me to. As Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God, what is that work today? What is the mission you've called me to today? Now, so often we're distracted with with breaking down vans. We're so distracted with the temporal, we give almost no attention to the eternal. So, so if we're gonna move to, to phase two, as it were, we, we, we need God to change our perspective, to give us uh, a focus and, and attention on what really matters, what's really eternal, what's really future, and be satisfied with, with the, the fullness of all that God has given in, us, in himself today. And then we will laugh. And then we will feel satisfied regardless of our circumstances because God will be enough. He turns in verses 27 to 36 to a a change of motivation. A change of motivation. Notice, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, do to them also. A change of motivation. Because truly, something has got to change in our heart for us to follow through on these kinds of commands. Because, as I said last week, these are just absolutely ridiculous. Who who does this? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Nobody does this. This is irrational. This is not logical. This, you might even say, is not even safe or wise. And that's the point. You see, the point of all of this is to draw attention to what is not natural. Do the opposite of what is natural. Because then you will know, in fact, that power is inside. Then you will know for a fact that the Spirit is inside. Then you will know that you are acting in a way that can't happen inside of you, but can only happen as the Spirit comes and gives you power for the work. Christ issues these commands directly. It demonstrates his authority to instruct and command those who are in his audience, to command allegiance for his true disciples. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And certainly they are meant 
to set his audience on edge, to tip them off balance, to confront their cultural ideas, to condemn their standard practices that were bent on self-service. Do the opposite of what is normal. Show the power of God in your life. Reorient your motive. So what is the motive? What is the underlying motive that drives all of these things? Well, I think we get there beginning in verse 35. It says, Your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. So what's the motive? Well, be careful. Don't read into this verse that the motivation is delayed gratification. That, that, that someday there's going to be payday. That, that someday there's going to be a reward day. That, that's not the point of this verse. The, the, the point of this verse is the reward is sonship. The reward is belonging. The reward is identity. And as one who is a son of the Most High, you reflect, you have the honor of testifying to the wonder of that sonship of being sons and daughters of a king of the universe. That's the reward. The reward is, is identity and alignment with the Father and reflecting the Father in the world around you because only through the power of the Spirit can those who belong to the Father really represent Him faithfully in this life. By the way, this idea of sonship would have absolutely blown the doors off their thinking. Because in the Old Testament, there's only a couple of places in the Old Testament where, where the children of Israel are referred to as sons of the Father, sons of God. One of those places is, is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 14 to 18. This is the Davidic covenant where, where God has come to David and is, is helping to, to him to understand the significance of this promise of continuing essentially his lineage and continuing his kingdom. And it's going to happen through Solomon, but then also happen through his future seed, who would be Christ. Notice, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Speaking directly and immediately about Solomon, who is going to kind of carry the legacy of David and carry on this, this Davidic line from King David and then future into Christ. It says, When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the Son of Men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Immediately speaking of David's seed, Solomon, who would enjoy the benefits of sonship to the Father God, but ultimately and eventually speaking about Jesus Christ, who would be the preeminent seed of David, who'd be the preeminent king of Israel, who would obviously have the Father, God the Father, as his Father and represent his kingdom on this earth. But now Jesus, 
taking this truth, now applies it to his target audience and says, you will be sons of the Most High. Let that just sink in for, for a moment. I, I think sometimes these truths in the Bible become so familiar that we have a flippant and somewhat lackadaisical understanding and appreciation of the gravity of being able to call God Father. So that John, John the Apostle, he is so blown away by this. In, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Wow, can you believe it? That is the truth that Jesus is, is telling this audience and, and probably most of them for the first time. They're like, what? What's going on? How is that possible? And Jesus applies this truth to them. And here is the incredible part about this truth. Sons of the Most High. Now, now Jesus makes a direct correlation to something this audience wouldn't have necessarily understood, but only the readers of the Gospel of Luke because the last time this phrase is used of God, the Most High, it's used of Gabriel's announcement to Mary that she will be overshadowed by the Most High and he will conceive Jesus in her womb. The significance of sonship would have absolutely blown this crowd away. And Jesus is commending the benefits of sonship to us and as a motivation of being able to show off and represent God the Father in your day-to-day, -day, in your families, in your communities, wherever you are, you are a showpiece of the Father. They see him when you do things that can't be explained any other way. When you love your enemies, when you pray for those who curse you, no one does that, but God does that. And when you do that, you show power. The power of God working inside to accomplish something that can't happen any other way. The third principle, the third change, is found in verses 37 to 42. True disciples need a change of posture. A change of posture. Notice, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Just pause for a moment. Actually, maybe drop down to verse 40. We'll pick it up. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Jesus is describing a posture of humility here. Jesus is describing why religion and why standards exist. The standard that, that, that God has provided to us is, is not intended to be a microscope by which you examine and evaluate the world around you and scrutinize every detail and judge the hearts of the people who are in front of you. The law and the standard isn't meant to be a microscope, it's meant to be a mirror. It's meant to be a way in which you evaluate your own heart and life. How do I compare with the standard that God has given to me? How does my life reflect true discipleship? How does my life show that the Spirit is really living inside my heart? And so as we demonstrate 
a true motive of humility as we submit ourselves to the standard and, and allow it to do its work in our own lives, then we benefit and we grow and we become better disciples, better representations of the teacher, the master, the Lord who has instructed us. Now, this verse 38, it seems a little out of place. At least it did for me. It talks about not judging, not condemning, but forgiving. And now he says, give, and it will be given to you. What, what in the world is that for? Why is that there? It seems so out of place. Well, I believe that what Jesus is doing here is providing another help to his, his audience to help them understand the significance of sowing and reaping, of putting off and putting on. It's not good enough to say, don't do this. You have to fill the void with the, the right posture, the right things to fill the void with. So here's the principle. As we sow criticism, as we sow judgment and condemnation, as we have a critical eye to the people around us, we are cultivating the kinds of relationships and, and, and essentially begging them to do the same for us. It becomes a, a really toxic environment. Or what happens is you just put your mask on, you gotta look a certain way, you gotta cover it up, because if they find out what's happening deep down inside, they don't wanna have anything to do with you. That's not the kind of religion that Jesus is after. So in exchange, you sow seeds of grace. You sow seeds of compassion and giving. And as you demonstrate a heart of God, you are merciful, as in verse 36. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. As you cultivate that and sow those seeds of mercy and kindness, then you're going to enjoy the benefits of that, first from God and then from others. And notice how abounding it is. Jesus uses several different um, descriptions to, to, to help us understand how incredible the benefit of this kind of life is. Notice, it, it will be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, spilling into your lap. Five different ways. Jesus is saying, it's going to be more than you can ever imagine the kind of giving that God will give to you as your heart is oriented towards a posture of humility and giving. Because, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, he says, he says, um, as I go, who, not, not who shall separate us from the love of God, but what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That God gave you his best in his son. You, you can't hope or dream of anything better. And, and God gave him to you if you believe. So have a posture of humility. Have a posture of of examining your own life as we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse five. 
says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Do you have a posture of humility? Do you have a perspective change? Are your motives different? Are you motivated by what makes God look glorious in this world? And that's where Jesus turns. He, he turns now to some tests, so some proofs, as it were, of discipleship. That's where, we, that's where we land at the end of this chapter 43 to 49. What, what is the proof or what is the test of true discipleship? How do you know? And by the way, this is, is significant because if you, if you fail to meet the test, then it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not a disciple. It just means that you, you need to be cautious and you need to look deep inside to see what's out of step and, and, and access the power of God and plead with God to do a work in your heart that you can't do for yourself. The, the first test is a check, check for your fruit. Check your fruit. Notice, for no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The point of this is, what kind of tree are you? And he's looking at types or kinds of trees. He's not evaluating the specific fruit on the tree. Like there are some rotten apples and there are some good apples. Is this a good or bad tree? No, does this tree have fruit that is help, <clears throat> excuse me, helpful or necessary or beneficial for life? As opposed to the thorn bushes or the bramble bushes that don't produce anything that are meaningful or useful. Jesus is, is asking you to evaluate. Does your life bear good fruit? The application is found in verse 45. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, uh-oh, here's the fruit, the mouth speaks. The greatest fruit-bearing evidence that you and I bring to the table is the evidence of words. Should that be any mystery? We've, we've talked for how long about the power of words, the, the ministry of words that, that God has given to us. I mean, the mission statement of Christ in Luke chapter 4, 18 and 19 is punctuated by words. So there's no surprise then that the, the fruit of our heart the, the true testimony of our heart bears out in a fruit of words. What kind of words are we talking about? Well, we could have any number of sermons on just this point. But let me draw your attention. I'm just going to take you through a, through, through a couple of verses in Ephesians that, that help us understand what kind of words does a true disciple speak. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. One of the things that we as a family have really tried to focus on with our children is recognizing the significance of truth as opposed to lies. It's so easy to cover up a story or to, 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 to take a perspective that, that paints you in the best possible light 
But if we're going to enjoy the benefits of healing, especially in the deepest parts of us, we need to be truthful about the problem. Not disguise it, not cover it up, not, not try to dress it up in any way, but to be honest and candid. Because healing only comes as we bring our diseases, our problems, our brokenness, our sin to God. Otherwise, you're not going to experience healing or forgiveness. Be truthful. Chapter 4, verse 29 says, Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Words that are occasioned and deliberate in building up, encouraging those around you. Chapter 5, verse 4, Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Ephesians 5, 18 and 20 focus on this thanksgiving element that those who are filled with the Spirit will, will speak thanksgiving. They'll speak psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Giving thanks, verse 20, always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks always and for everything. Thank you, Lord, for a broken down van. Because your desire is to do something in my life that couldn't have happened otherwise. And there's something I need to learn through this experience. There's, there's some training that, that needs to happen. Maybe, maybe just as simple as, as stepping back and, and, and calling attention to, to asking God for help because I'm so busy and so distracted by the ebb and flow of life. I just need to, to pull back from the things that, that seem to scramble my attention and I need to focus on what really matters. How about, Lord, thank you for cancer. Thank you for letting me lose my job. Lord, thank you for that diagnosis. Thank you for that, that body part that doesn't seem to work the way it once did. Thankful always and for everything. That's not an easy thing to do. And by the way, it's, it's not thankful to God that things could be worse. It's thankful to God that, that things are bad and thankful for God for that specific circumstance that he's put in your way and pleading with God to help you see, God, what is the reason for this? Help me like what I see in James chapter one, verse three, to count it all joy because I know that you're using this to help me grow in maturity. And what comes out of your mouth, not grumbling, not complaining, not criticism, not belly aching, but thankfulness and joy and edification, that's the fruit of what's really in your heart. Do you really belong to God? Are you really a disciple? And then check your foundation. That's what comes last. In verses 46 to 49, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not do 
them is like a man who builds a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. You call Jesus your teacher? You call him your master? It's not true unless you obey. Fundamentally. Who is your Lord? Who is your master? Who is the one who is calling the shots in your life? When the Bible says to do something, you find there's a responsive spirit in your heart that says, okay, let's do this. And when you do, you will find that your life is grounded on a foundation that will not fail. Same circumstances here for both of these houses, same challenges, same cultural pressures, same storm, same stream, same flood, same rain, different results because there was a different foundation. That when God said do something, there were pylons of their foundation went deep and they said what God says we will do again going back to Mary when hearing this incredible news of giving birth to the Savior she says may it be to me according to your will that's the heart of a true disciple that must be the heart of every one of us who call, the, call themselves followers of Jesus may it be true Oh God, help us. We are so fallen. We are so inadequate. We are so broken. We pray the power of your spirit will make that connection for us. So often it is disconnected. We need the power of your spirit to come and to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves so that we can show the greatness of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. May the name of Christ be praised through our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming this morning. God bless you.